Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Welcome to the history of witchcraft. Episode 19. The Eternal City and the Evil Eye. I've seen Canidia myself, wandering barefoot, with her black robe tucked in, and dishevelled hair howling with the elder Sagana. Pallor making them hideous to view, they scrape at the soil with their nails, then set to tearing a black lamb to bits with their teeth. The blood ran into the trench, so they might summon the souls of the dead, spirits to give them answers. An excerpt from the Apodes of Quintus Horatius Flaccus. Those who perform, or have performed for them, impious or nocturnal rites for the purposes of enchanting, bewitching, or binding someone, are either crucified or thrown to the beasts. Those who sacrifice human beings, or take auspices with human blood, or pollute a shrine or a temple, are thrown to the beasts, or, if they are of superior rank, executed. Those who are knowledgeable in the art of magic are to receive the supreme penalty, that is, to be thrown to the beasts or crucified. The magicians themselves are burnt alive. No one may possess books on the art of magic, and those found in possession have their property confiscated and their books burnt in public. They are deported to an island or, if of inferior rank, executed. An excerpt from the Lex Cornelia Sicarius A. Venificis. When once the mysteries had assumed this promiscuous character, and men were mingled with women with all the license of nocturnal orgies, there was no crime, no deed of shame wanting. More uncleanliness was wrought by men with men than with women. Whoever would not submit to defilement or shrank from violating others was sacrificed as a victim. To regard nothing as impious or criminal was the very sum of their religion. The men, as though seized with madness and with frenzied distortions of their bodies, shrieked out prophecies. The matrons, dressed as Bacchae, their hair dishevelled, rushed down to the Tiber with burning torches, plunged them into the water, and drew them out again, the flame undiminished, as they were made of sulphur mixed with lime. Men 
were fastened to a machine and hurried off to hidden caves, and they were said to have been wrapped away by the gods. These were the men who refused to join their conspiracy, or to take part in their crimes, or to submit to pollution. They formed an immense multitude, almost equal to the population of Rome. Amongst them were members of noble families, both men and women. It had been made a rule for the last two years that no one more than 20 years old should be initiated. Livy's History of Rome on the Bacchanalia Welcome back to the History of Witchcraft. Over the last few weeks, we have covered some of the earliest civilizations that influenced and developed each other's opinions on magic and sorcery. The Mesopotamians and Egyptians, the Zoroastrian Persians and the Classical Greeks, all having elements that are both alien and familiar to our modern understanding of the magical arts. Today, we will examine the style of such beliefs in, perhaps, the greatest influence on Western civilization as a whole. That of the Eternal City, Rome. Rome's geographical extent from the borders of Scotland in the north to the Sahara Desert in the south, the Atlantic Ocean in the west to the Levant in the east, meant that its influence covered most of Europe, and its longevity and prestige meant that Roman institutions and precedents continued long after the Western Empire had fallen, and the barbarian kingdoms that would become today's nation-states arose. The collapse of Alexander the Great's empire into multiple warring kingdoms coincided with the rise of a new power in the Mediterranean. Like the city-states of the Balkans, this power was based around a single city, which had defeated its neighbours and held hegemony over their peninsula, the Republic of Rome. The Romans had established their dominance over Italy, including the Hellenic colonies in the heel of Sicily, in a series of wars against the Etruscans, Samnites, Celts, and the Greeks themselves, and by 275 BCE, the Roman Republic was a formidable force that could not be ignored. Their rival in the Mediterranean, the former Phoenician colony of Carthage, would fight a number of wars with the Romans, before it too would be annexed into the Republic in 146 BCE. While these Punic Wars took place, Rome expanded its influence into the Greek homeland, both through allies and outright annexation, before Augustus properly annexed the peninsula as a whole in 27 BCE. The Roman Empire would continue its expansion until it held dominion over Anatolia, the Levant, and Egypt, first through vassal states and then outright annexation into the empire. These eastern provinces of the empire, highly urbanised in comparison with the west, with centuries if not millennia of recorded history, would become the financial, political and cultural heartland of the Roman Empire. The Romans had always admired Greek culture, exported both from the Greek colonies on the Italian peninsula as well as from the Greek homeland across the Adriatic. The incorporation of Greece into the empire hastened the transfer of the Greeks' philosophic ideas into Roman culture, most directly through the thousands of Greek slaves that were captured during the repeated wars, and who would be highly sought after by patrician families to educate their offspring. It was in the east that the empire would survive the fall of its founding city, lasting for another thousand years before finally being snuffed out in 1453. By this time, the people and nobility of the Roman Empire spoke not the Latin of Rome's founders, but Greek. The Greeks may not have been able to stand against the might of Rome's armies, but culturally, the Latin barbarians barely held a candle to their new subjects. 
The Greeks may have lost their political independence when the Roman legions marched into their cities, but Greek language and culture would come to dominate their conquerors utterly. It isn't for no reason that we refer to the classical Mediterranean as the Greco-Roman world. However, as historian Matthew Dickey notes in his Magic and Magicians in the Greco-Roman World, it is dangerous to assume that either Roman culture was, quote, the products of native Roman genius, or that Rome was little more than an extension of the Greek world. Finding the middle way is somewhat tricky, as we will see. Some of the magical methods used by Romans were almost identical to those in Hellenistic Greece. Curse tablets, known as defictiones in Latin, were common throughout the Roman world, and similarly to the spread of Greek tablets under Diadochi rule, the former lands of the empire are strewn with such artefacts. Their uses are similar to those we saw in episode 17. Often, they are attempting to seduce a resistant lover, or to smite an opponent. One such curse tablet has been found in modern-day Seville, in the south of Spain, which asks the gods of the underworld to cause, quote, the head, heart, mind, health, life, and limbs of a woman called Luxia to be affected by illness. End quote. This tablet was dated to the late 1st century BCE. However, the tablets that have been found are not all as specific nor as malevolent as this. A collection of roughly 130 curse tablets were found at the end of the 1970s in the British city of Bath. Bath is a city founded by the Romans, famous for the quality and number of the Roman baths in the city. We can apparently blame the Anglo-Saxons for this lazy naming, as they called it Badum, which became Bath. The Romans themselves called the city Aqua Sulis, or the Waters of Sulis. Mostly, the curse tablets were meant almost as a magical security system, threatening the intervention of the Romano-British goddess, Sulis Minerva, upon anyone who stole the clothes and belongings of the bathers. One tablet reads, Docomedes has lost two gloves, and asks that the thief responsible should lose their mind and eyes in the goddess's temple. Which seems a little bit harsh. Dickey points out that Latin curse tablets in the Republican period had not, at least at the time of his writing in 2002, been found within the city of Rome itself. He makes the very convincing argument, at least to me, that if the people in the provinces were creating Greek-style curse tablets in the Latin language, how likely is it that the cradle of the empire, where cultural developments were the most influential, had zero practitioners of this type of magic? The chances are slim. Pliny is of the opinion that most magicians were charlatans, exaggerating their abilities as a means of building renown and turning a profit. Pliny illustrates this with a recount of the Emperor Nero, infamous for supposedly fiddling while Rome burned, who was taught by magicians. And yet, despite having access to the most famous sorcerers and influential books due to his wealth and position, was unable to practice anything that could be considered true magic. Still, Pliny asserts that spells themselves had a shadow of truth. While the vast majority of magic users had no actual powers, there were some with genuine abilities, and so the use of charms and talismans was probably a good idea, the thinking being better safe than sorry. Both the Greeks and the Romans feared the power of the evil eye, the malus oculus in Latin an ability believed to be held by some individuals as well as entire groups of people, 
such as the Scythians and the Pontic tribes. This type of curse was transmitted, as the name suggests, through both eye contact between the caster and the victim, as well as just being gazed upon by the possessor of the evil eye. The eye was meant to cause harm and misfortune, and many countercharms were made purely to ward off the effects of the evil eye, with a notable one being the Fascinus. During the Greek episode, I alluded to the evil eye and the novel way that the Greeks and Romans combated its effects. I've since received a few comments from listeners who appreciated the subtle references I made to it. I called it a cock and bull story for one thing, and that whole segment was basically me trying to fit as many penis jokes in as I could, because that is what it was. In a wonderfully Roman way, fascinum were stone and metal sculptures of the male reproductive organ. A terracotta figurine dating from the 1st century BCE depicts, and I quote, two little phallus men sawing an eyeball in half, end quote while one particularly graphic mosaic shows, and in a bid to keep this episode fairly clean, I'll use some license with my word choice here, it shows a divine phallus interacting with a disembodied eye in a recreational way. Are we all on the same page? Good. These fascinum have been found all over the former empire. Adam Parker of the Open University, as well as the assistant curator of archaeology at the Yorkshire Museum, provides a number of images in his article protecting the troops, phallic carvings in the north of Roman Britain. I would just love to put these on the Facebook page, but I'd be risking it being taken down because they are literally stone carvings of penises. So instead, I will point you to his articles. In Protecting the Troops, Parker finds a strong connection between the permanent military installations on the northern border, particularly at Hadrian's Wall, and the quantity of phallic carvings which have survived. These carvings have been found repeatedly carved in similar places, above windows and doorways, in the entrances to buildings, and on bridges. The fascinum were intended, Parker argues, to protect the occupants of the buildings, as well as those traversing the bridges. For this reason, the fascinum were not hidden away. They were visible and touchable to all who passed them, and therefore granted them a measure of protection from misfortune. But say you aren't a Roman legionary posted to an active war zone. What if you were an ordinary civilian out on business and you fell victim to the evil eye? Well, you can hardly carry around a limestone brick complete with a sculpted penis everywhere you go. Indeed, this clear obstacle was resolved through the use of an amulet, or a remedium in the general Latin term. These amulets were often worn by those who feared sickness, and those already sick to protect them from the spirits which caused such illness. The bulla, the specific term for an amulet in the form of a phallus, was often worn by the young sons of patricians and equestrian notables. Their privileged position would naturally draw envy, and so the bulla would protect them from any supernatural ill will. The fascinum's use as protection from malevolent witchcraft extends to more than just shielding an individual. The festival of Pater Liber, a Roman god that shared many similarities with Dionysus, involved, and I quote, an obscene member placed on a little trolley, exhibited with great honour at the crossroads in the countryside, and then conveyed into the city itself, end quote. This act was meant to bless the land to protect the region from disease, as well as making the crops immune to spells cast by foreign witches. 
If you're wondering why the word fascinum sounds so similar to fascinate, there is a connection. Originally, to be fascinated was to be bewitched by a look from a witch or sorcerer. It seems to have been first recorded in France in the 16th century, with the term evolving to something that holds your attention in the early 19th. There's some debate over what the connection actually is between a Roman word for a device that protects from an evil look and a French word for an evil look. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Another parallel to Greek beliefs is the existence of mythological witches. Of course, the Greeks had their own infamous witches, like Circe and Medea, that used their magic and poisons against the heroes of their epic poems. These epics and plays were well known in Rome, at least by the 2nd century BCE, as were Hellenistic treaties by Pythagoras and other wise men on the medicinal uses of plants. The concept of magic and magical arts must have been somewhat known in Rome at this point, and developed its own path. Circe and Medea, while known for their Hellenistic origins, were repurposed in a Roman myth that sought to explain the apparent magical abilities of the Marsi people of the central Apennine Mountains. A historian writing in the 2nd century BCE, Gnaeus Gellius, tells that King Aetes, the semi-mythical king of cultures we touched on in episode 17, had three daughters, Circe, Medea, and Angatea, but Gellius gives the sisters a different fate than their Greek originators. Circe had left her island and settled in the Circean hills, where she continued her potions and illusions. Medea had been buried by Jason, of Argonaut fame, in the area, and her son ruled the Marsi people. While Angitia lived near the Fusine Lake, where she provided her healing powers to the locals and was worshipped as a goddess because of it. Some of these elements, particularly Circe's new domicile, are referred to in Virgil's Aeneid, but the concept of powerful female magic wielders presented by the sisters was borrowed by the Romans for their own literature. I speak primarily of the characters Canidia and Erecto. Canidia was created by the poet Quintus Horatius Flaccus, often anglicised to Horace, who lived during the reign of Augustus, the first emperor of Rome, although of course he called himself merely Primus Inter Pares, the first of equals, because you know, Rome is still a republic, guys. Anyway, Horace was the author of a number of satires and poems that dealt with the classic topics of philosophy, love, and politics. As his career progressed and his fame grew, he claimed he could grant immortality to those he praised in his poems, an offer that Augustus himself supposedly took an interest in. Canidia, along with her fellow witch Sagana, first appear in Horace's satires, which I subjected you to a reading of at the beginning of the episode. Further down the poem, the witches are said to cry out to Hecate, the Greek goddess of magic, as well as to Stephanie, 
A fury that was meant to punish murderers of all kinds, but who was spurned by a mortal man and subsequently killed him by turning a lock of her own hair into a snake. Greek myths, everybody. Canidia is described as a hideous creature, all long nails, pale skin, and false teeth, as well as being an adept poisoner. Erecto is of the same ilk, possibly first created by Ovid around the same time as Horace. Her character was later fleshed out by Lucan, a century later in his poem, Phosalia, which describes the civil war of Caesar and Pompey. Erecto dwells near graveyards and battlefields, and uses the bodies from these places in her spells and necromancy. Her very breath was said to be poisonous. She was said to take delight in cannibalism, and was impious to the extreme, never showing due deference to the gods. In the poem, the son of Pompey, Sextus Pompeius, seeks out Erecto in order for her to prophesy the result of the civil war, which, spoiler alert, the Pompeys do not win. The prophecy involves resurrecting a recently deceased but unburied corpse from a recent battle. The corpse is washed and filled with a potion of Erecto's making, the ingredients of which include warm blood and, quote, everything that nature wickedly bears, end quote. And yet, surprisingly, when summoned, the spirit refuses to enter the body. That is, at least, until Erecto threatens to summon, quote, that god at whose dread name earth trembles, end quote. At which point the spirit concedes, enters the body, and gives them news of a civil war in the underworld, as well as the answers Sextus seeks. This fearsome god that Lucan helpfully leaves unnamed has been theorised to have been a number of deities, such as Ahriman, who we spoke of in the Persian episode, as well as the Greek god Hermes, and the Abrahamic god Yahweh. These Roman depictions of witches share some similarities with Greek perceptions of magic, as well as having some noteworthy differences. Canidia and Erecto both have connections to Greece, as Canidia worships Hecate, and Erecto is said to hail from Thessalia, the region of Greece known to be steeped in knowledge of sorcery. Canidia is also a prolific poisoner, a practitioner of what the Greeks would call pharmaca. However, the differences appear when one examines the appearances and actions of the Greek and Roman witches. In the plays and epics of Hellenic Greece, Circe and Medea are both astonishingly beautiful women, having power over men by the power of their looks as well as by their magic. In contrast, Horace and Lucan make a point of establishing how abhorrent their witches are. These are not figures depicted as descended from gods, like Circe. I'll put images of paintings of Circe and Erecto on the Facebook page just to highlight the differences in their appearances. Granted, these paintings were made far past the time period we are currently looking at, but they are based on the descriptions in the poems. Circe is the image of a demigoddess, resplendent in her beauty, whereas Erecto is depicted as, for lack of a better phrase, an old hag that's fallen into a sewer. Both Canidia and Erecto are made out not as the seductresses of their Greek forebears, but much more like the stereotypical witch we think of today. Additionally, the actions of Erecto and Canidia are less justified, if that is the correct term, than those of Medea and Circe. True, Circe attempted to imprison Odysseus by turning him and his crew into animals, and Medea murdered an innocent girl and her own children, 
but in the Homeric epics, this was fairly par for the course. Medea had been abandoned and humiliated by her husband, was being cast out of the city, and wanted revenge. Circe was a Greek goddess. Interfering with mortals was their bread and butter. The witches of Lucan and Horus were more evil in the context of their stories. Both are shown to be necromancers, magicians who held power over the dead, something considered sacrilege in many cultures. Canidia, along with Sagana, summon the spirits to answer their questions through blood sacrifice, and unleash demonic hellhounds and snakes in the process. Erikto literally breathes death, and is said to have had the ability to raise entire armies of the dead to support the cause of Pompey Magnus. These are not tragic figures like Medea, nor capricious but not malicious like Circe, since even after the attempted imprisonment, Odysseus happily hangs around for a year and gives her three kids, so she can't have been that bad. Canidia and Erecto are presented with no redeemable qualities, and are simply shown to be as evil as possible. Now, obviously this is all just extrapolated from a few poems written by only a couple of writers, so of course on their own they do not give us a full picture of Roman views of witchcraft. Maybe these characters were simply that, characters, written to give their audiences a villain, that everyone could get behind disliking. In terms of the checklist of how to be a bad person, Erecto is pretty much just missing kick a puppy and be a member of House Bolton. She's a character that audiences would love to hate, but that doesn't mean that those same audiences would believe witches like her existed. However, we must assume that these traits were somewhat well known to the Roman public, as legal codes and precedents show just how seriously the threat of witchcraft was taken. As Dickey puts it, quote, Magicians in the Roman world did not enjoy complete freedom of action. There were three forms of constraint that the community imposed on them. There was the danger of being prosecuted for magic under the law. Then there were the police actions the authorities might take at any given time to eliminate magic workers from their midst, either executing them or expelling them. Finally, there were spontaneous actions on the part of the populace to drive out a known or suspected magician who was felt to be a threat to the well-being of the community. Some of the oldest Roman laws were the Twelve Tables, a set of law codes that were intended to be equally applied to both patrician and plebeian, rich and poor, a sort of common law for Rome. The tables covered the most important aspects of ancient life, inheritance, taxes, land rights, marriage, religion, and the punishment of crimes. As you can probably guess, because I'm bringing it up, and also I read it out at the beginning of today's episode, the tables deal with witchcraft. One of the offences listed under the eighth table was to cast, or have someone else cast, a spell on another person, with the punishment being death. Likewise, the seventh table states that using magic to either harm or steal crops and livestock was a capital crime. As mentioned previously, crops were such a valuable and vulnerable target of witchcraft that entire festivals were celebrated by the Romans to try and protect them from magic. The tables appear to have been consulted well into the first millennium, although the noted orator and scholar Cicero, writing in the first century BCA, lamented how few people knew them by heart at this point. There was also a tendency for Roman writers to assume that any law that seemed to have an archaic flavour must have originated from the tables, and was retroactively added. Along with the Twelve Tables, 
individual laws were enacted to deal with the threat of witchcraft. The Roman statesman and dictator Sulla decreed the Lex Cornelia de Sicarias a Beneficis, a law that expanded the crimes that would result in expulsion or execution. Along with mundane topics such as murder and carrying weapons within the city with intent to harm, the law made it illegal to purchase, supply, or use various drugs that could be used in acts of witchcraft and poisoning, as well as committing magical acts in particular. This included acts that we would consider medical, such as circumcision, castration, and abortion, with some exceptions in effect for those who could prove medical or religious motive. Dickey refers to a case where a man was accused of harnessing magic and taken to court. Furious Cresimus was a freedman, possibly originating from a Greek-speaking region, who had incurred the hostility and envy of his neighbours after his harvest was substantially larger than theirs. His neighbours formally accused Cresimus of using magic to attract the bounty of his neighbours to his plot. The potential punishment was, oddly enough, not execution, but either way, Cresimus was indeed furious. In order to prove his innocence, the freedman had all the hands of his household carry all of his equipment into the forum. Cresimus then pointed to both the tools and his household, declaring that these were his spells, high-quality equipment, and the effort of well-fed men. What he could not bring into the city as evidence were the night watchmen he'd posted, the midnight oil he'd burnt, or the sweat he expended in growing his bounty. In other words, I grew more than my neighbours because I put the effort and money in, and they didn't. He was acquitted. While the authenticity of this account is questionable, it does highlight the tensions that we have seen cause witchcraft trials previously. A successful outsider always earns envy, and if this success can be suspected to be earned from illegitimate, supernatural means, well then accusations can fly. While the authenticity of the case of Furious Cresimus is suspect, there are a few cases of prosecutions for the use of magic which appear to have occurred. One was during the reign of Tiberius in the year 23 or 24 AD, for a woman named as Numantina, accused of making her former husband go insane through incantations and spells. She was most likely charged under the Lex Cornelia. Her ex-husband, Plautius Silvanus, had been a praetor, a position of significant standing. He had thrown his new wife either down a flight of stairs or out of a window, killing her. When questioned, he stuck to his story that his wife had taken her own life, despite there being multiple family members and servants who witnessed him murder her. They all claimed that Plautius appeared to be sleepwalking, or otherwise under the effect of a spell. Tiberius himself intervened in the case, visiting the crime scene personally, and noting that there was substantial evidence of a struggle. But the case never went to trial. Plautius opened his veins with a dagger, possibly on the urging of the emperor himself to avoid a scandal. Lamentina was acquitted of the charge, yet nevertheless the fact that she had been accused in the first place reveals certain ideas about what a spurned Roman woman was believed capable of. Livy, in his History of Rome, describes multiple hysterical moral panics on par with the later early modern witch hunts. Almost 200 women were executed in the 4th century BCE, while an enormous 5,000 people were condemned to death in the first half of the 2nd century. 
The events Livy records bear striking similarities to the descriptions of witch covens in the early modern period. Immoral sexual congress, blood sacrifice, debauchery, murders by blade and poisoning. The meetings were not the early modern sabbats that took place on moors and in isolated places, though. This was the Bacchanalia, a previously legitimate festival which had, by Livy's argument, been corrupted by influences from Etruria, a region to the north of Rome itself. This Bacchanalia took place multiple times a month, and was accompanied by music and dancing. Livy states that the music was used to drown out the noise of the activities taking place. Again, according to Livy, this mystery cult was revealed to the authorities by a son fleeing his mother, who sought to initiate him into the group by having sex with him. And the ensuing panic led to parents denouncing their children, children denouncing their parents, and husbands killing their wives. The Senate didn't help matters by offering a reward for those who denounced others, and it was expected that the paterfamilia, the male head of the family, would enforce the punishment of execution. If they did not kill their wives, sisters, or daughters in the privacy of their own homes, the authorities would, in a public place, and their honour would be in dispute. Naturally, with many executions taking place away from public records, the number of dead is unknown. A subsequent wave of executions in the next few years was explained as a crackdown on the original survivors of the first purge, who took their revenge in a spate of poisonings against those who had organised and taken part in the earlier hunt. How true all of this is, especially regarding the acts conducted at such a gathering, as well as the number of those executed, is disputed. The son that alerted the authorities had been disinherited by his stepfather and mother, and so possibly held a grudge. Similarly, when the Senate began offering rewards for denunciations, old grudges could now be settled at the expense of the state. As with many legacies of Rome, medieval Europe would learn from the actions of the Romans, and their laws against witchcraft would be used as templates for both secular and religious authorities in defining what it was to be a witch, and what their punishment should be. As we've seen already, the image of an old woman with warts and rotten teeth, making pacts with demons and raising the dead, became a common image during the period of the witch trials. Quite how much influence Roman culture had on this development is disputed, but it must have played some sort of role. Thank you for listening to this episode of the History of Witchcraft. If you've enjoyed the episode, please consider leaving me a positive review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whichever podcast app you use. You can visit the website at thehistoryofwitchcraft.co.uk, where you will find my contact details if you have any questions. The show also has a Facebook page and a Twitter feed if you want to keep up to date. The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening.